Blog Talk Radio. Hi, welcome to Blog Talk Radio, Safe Recovery. I'm Monica, and I'm your host. Safe Recovery is a show designed to address predatory behavior in 12-step meetings, and we are also here to explore and discuss alternatives to 12-step, and we want to support men and women who have written books about these alternatives. Our slogan is empowerment, not powerless. Tonight, we have a very special guest, this is somebody who I found uh, while I was watching Penn & Teller bullshit. Um, there were some uh, posts on Stinkin' Thinkin' blog. I want to thank Friend the Girl for putting up there that I'm having a radio sh- show tonight. Thank you so much. So I watched this Penn & Teller show, and I saw uh, this woman who was speaking, and I was like, wow, she is really fantastic. Who is this woman? And I got her name, and I Googled her, and I found her. I emailed her, and she emailed me right back. And then about a week later, or whatever it took, she and I um, were able to talk on the phone. And we talked for quite a long time, for the first time, maybe 30 minutes, I think, Didi, we talked for. uh, And she really made me feel sane. I was still in AA, and I think I was... um, really having a hard time trying to make things safer from the inside. And uh, it was really an amazing experience when I spoke to Dee Dee Stout. So we have with us tonight, she is an author, and she is uh, an addiction. What, what, I'm going to let you say what you are. But she, she practices uh, harm reduction. So the name of the book is Coming to Harm Reduction, Kicking and Screaming, Looking for Harm Reduction in a 12-Step World by Dee Dee Stout. And it's like you wrote this in maybe 2009. Uh, I'm going to bring, I hope this is you right now. Hi, Dee Dee. Hi. It is me, Monica. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) You got it. Okay. That's a good start. Welcome. Welcome to my show. (laughs) Well, thanks so much. I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah. Do you have your own show as well on Blog Talk Radio now? I do. I do. I'm on another venture on which I'm a founding partner, something mm-hmm. called aa2.org. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, do the blogtalkradio.com forward slash aa numeral 2, okay. you would find us on Wednesdays. I'm there at 5 p.m. And our show is about change, any kind of change. Mm-hmm. And we have some guests, and sometimes the other founding partners and I just have sort of a roundtable discussion about what we've learned between the three of us. We have 100 years of experience in this field, so yeah. we, wow. we have a few things that we want to say, and hopefully somebody wants to hear it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll follow it. I'll put it in there. I, I guess I was, Thanks. I don't know how I saw it, but I did, and I went, oh, look, at you have a... Yeah. Um, you know, another show, and I think this is really great between Kenneth Anderson and mm-hmm. Gunther had a show, which is what turned me on to Blog Talk Radio. Uh-huh. Uh, but, um, yeah, that's it's really good. So uh, your book, uh, one mm-hmm. of the first, I, I've been reading it and um, really, really loving it because there's uh, so many, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, well, let me ask you a little bit about yourself. So, yeah, you have been working in the field for how many years? For nearly 25 years. Awesome. And I've worked in all sorts of different settings in treatment, in uh, what used to be called chemical dependency treatment, mm-hmm. um, yeah, which was, of course, all 12-step based in those days and medical model, um, even mm-hmm. if it was not. I worked in hospitals. I worked in social model. I worked in therapeutic communities. 
Um, I've had a private practice for a number of years. Um, I've taught, I've been on faculty at various universities and colleges for 20 years now. I just down from um, a college that I was at for about 13 years where I helped train new drug and alcohol counselors. Mm-hmm. So that's and, really important. Yeah. Now, you were yeah. in AA and left AA? You know, I don't feel like I ever really left AA. I mm-hmm. haven't gone to a meeting in a very long time. Mm-hmm. I had some phenomenal people that were both my sponsors and on my master's committee. You know, not often you get to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really? And, you know, they were really marvelous. And one of them is um, his first, well, one of his first sponsors in AA was Bill Wilson himself. Mm-hmm. And his chapter, his story, is in the big book. They've tried several times to take it out because it's the only one that talks about drug use, not including alcohol. You know, I mean, oh, yeah, the, that Dr. Alcoholic Addict? No, it's the no. Um, the other one. Oh, um, it's uh, Physician Heal Thyself. Oh, okay, okay. Dr. Earl. Dr. Earl is what, uh, Dr. Earl Marsh was his name. He died a few years ago now. Okay. And his was, I think, the first that talked about addiction in general, if I remember mm-hmm. right. And I could have that wrong, but you know, uh, when they I, tried. I actually had someone else on when we talked about joining and leaving, and actually it was uh-huh. my sister, and she said kind of a similar answer but different. She said, well, I never joined because you never mm-hmm. needed, like, you know, when you when you join even Shinuan Buddhism, you got to join, or if you, you know, you go to a club, usually, you know, you join, you have to sign a mm-hmm. paper and you pay a little fee, mm-hmm. $10 or something, mm-hmm. and we were joking about how they, they got you. You know, you never really felt like you joined. And mm-hmm. so, okay, I, I didn't know. So I, I did. I, I didn't know. Yeah, that I really, you, yeah. I felt very connected in AA mm-hmm. at first. You know, there right. was no question about that. Even though there were also some things that I wasn't crazy about. Right. Uh, I, the sort of the good outweighed the, the less good at, at mm-hmm. that point in my life. And I had used drugs, including alcohol, for a good 20 years, and I was just in my early 30s. So, you know, it had been the better part of my life. And so I found a lot of camaraderie and I found a lot of um, laid-backness. But there were also some of the problems were really glaring problems. In fact, the the young man that I wrote the dedication of my book to, Mike, Yeah. Uh, you know, that's where that came from, was from one of the horror stories out of 12-step. Now, again, what was good for me and what I realized not everybody gets is that I had people like Doc Earl and his wife, Dr. Marsh, Mickey Marsh, um, there who said, you know, don't listen to that crap. Don't pay mm-hmm. attention to it. What year was that, that back then? That would have been year? in the early, in the late 80s. Sorry, mm-hmm. late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. And um, I went back to school and I started questioning AA and I said I wanted to go to Smart Recovery, for instance. And yeah. I talked to Earl about that and he said, sure. He, said, he always called me baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, baby, you can do anything you want. It doesn't matter. Do right. whatever you want to do. AA is always going to be there. If you want to go back, go on back. And if you don't want to go at all, you don't have to. That was never the point. Bill did not expect people to go for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I, about, I, I read that last night. I told you I was up like till two in the morning reading, and yeah. it was kind of interesting the way that you correlate. You talk about, um, you know, actually what was going on in the country, uh, mm-hmm. the history of, you know, the, uh, what was going on with um, uh, prohibition, and then mm-hmm. what the world looked like, and then uh, actually that it didn't. And I thought to myself, you know, when I first went too, like well, a- anyway, like why did I think I had to go to meetings, you know, for the rest of my life? Right. Uh, and your comparison is interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the important things, I think, when we look at AA is that, or any of the 12 steps, you always have to look at anything in context, right? Or even if you look at treatment. Mm-hmm. And you can look at it when we began doing treatment in about the 60s, somewhere in there, and look at Synanon, right, from California. Right. Holy God, you know, nobody would say, oh, let's do treatment the way Synanon did it in the 1960s. That was so great. <laughs> right. I mean, it right. makes me laugh to even think about it. Yeah. And yet, we learned a lot from that. That doesn't mean throw the baby out with the bathwater. It means we both learned a little bit of what to do, 
maybe like we need more research. We need you know people with educations handling a medical condition. We, we need those kinds of things. Plus, we learn some things not to do very clearly. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, you know what? Someone else said that to me so, as I was exiting AA, and they said, well, don't yeah. throw the baby out. And I said, well, I just want to protect the baby. I want safety uh, from sexual harassment. Like, I'm not. Absolutely. Yeah, you Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's not too much to ask for either. No, no, it's very, yeah. I, I love SMART. I, you have some serious, in your table of contents, uh, some of the people who um, wrote their stories in here. We uh-huh. have Tom Horvath, and I read his, and Stanton Peel is in here. Um uh-huh. Yeah, I, I was really uh, enjoying reading this. So what happened to you that you said to me, oh, my God, like, you know, i got to write a book. What happened that made you sort of just, after all those years working in the field, that you needed to write this book? Well, that's a good question. Let me think about that for just a second. Um, I think that part of it were, were my students kind of egging me on, mm-hmm. constantly saying, you ought to write some of this stuff down, Dee Dee. Mm-hmm. And then I became uh, friends with uh, Pat Denning and Jeannie Little, who are also in my book, and who are part of the wave of harm reductionists. Pat wrote the seminal book on harm reduction psychotherapy called Practicing Harm Reduction Psychotherapy in 2000. Mm-hmm. I think she's working on a um, a new edition right now, if I remember correctly. And Pat and Jeannie and I became friends as well. They live in in this area. And I began to learn from them. So, you know, I sort of went to Jeannie, as I recall, first and said, I don't want to do this anymore, meaning the treatment that I had been used to all the time. I said, there's got to be a better way to treat people that doesn't require me making up all the rules and them following the way that I did things in my own life. Right. And I remember she started laughing and said, oh, thank God, another one bites the dust, and then caught herself yeah. and said, oh, I'm really sorry. She was kind of embarrassed. And I said, no, it's fine. You know, what do you mean? And she started to explain that about just wanting there to be some voices, um, some alternate voices right. out there. Right. So when I talked to... Pat and Jeannie a little bit more about this whole idea and about my history in 12-step, Pat was the one, as I recall, who said, you need to be writing this book. Because I actually went to her and said, would you write it? Because yeah. she was an author already. <laughs> right, she said, I have an idea for a book for you. Yeah. And she said, you know, I'm not going to write another bloody book, which, of course, she went on to do. But <laughs> right. neither here nor there. And, but she said, you're the perfect voice to do this because you are a 12-stepper. So she said, Jeannie and I don't have that history. So we're, we're speaking as an outsider, and that always gets thrown in our faces. What do you know? Yeah, you're not really one of us, quote-unquote. And she said that people can't do that with you. You're both. You're a harm reductionist and a 12-stepper. And you yeah. have found a way to make that work in your professional life. And, of course, mm-hmm. when I talk to my students – who would always, some of them were great about just hearing that in general, the way I said it. And every now and then there would be a handful of folks who would hear that I was telling them they should try um, moderate using. Mm-hmm. And I'd always say, where did you hear that? Right. What, what did I say? Let's go back and look at the words I said. The first right. of all, we're talking about a profession. So I'm talking about how you are with your your um, clients, not yeah. your own life. Right. You know, if if you used to shoot heroin and you don't anymore, and going to yoga five times a week is what helped you to stop doing that, why would I tell you you should cut back on doing yoga? <laughs> That's great. Right? I wouldn't do that. In right. fact, I'll be happy. I'll, I'll go with you if that would help you. You know. I mean, it's you know, yeah. but people hear that threat. Right. To, their, to something that's near and dear to them, that help them to save their lives. Mm-hmm. And what I like to try to do is to turn that around and say, you know, AA did not save my life. I saved my life with the Yay. support of people in AA. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right on, girl. But it was me doing that work. Right. Absolutely it was me. Why would I want to give my power away yet again? Yeah. Yes. So. So I wrote the book because Pat told me to. (laughs) 
Well, you know what? I'm so glad you did because um, one of the things that I loved, um, so I'm just going to, I did highlight some stuff. So this is in the beginning. I don't even know. Let me see where I am, but I think it's page three where someone is talking about recovery is defined, what it means, like that Mm -hmm. word is used. And I'm sorry to say, though, I'm a little... Like I'm at a place now where there's certain words that are all that are AA words. Like another blogger and I were talking about, I don't want to use them. You know, it's like recovery. I, I, w- I would be like Al Pacino when I heard, you know, he was interviewed and he's like, I'm not in recovery. I don't drink. And that's because I think he's not in AA, right? He doesn't want to be affiliated. Like that word is so associated with AA that right. I'm, in, I'm in a place of not deprogramming, but, you know, really um, having to pull back after, you know, 36 years. But anyway, you wrote here, mm-hmm. an act of recovering. The regaining of or a possibility of regaining something lost or taken away, restoration Mm -hmm. or return to health from sickness, and restoration or return to any form and better state or condition. Mm -hmm. That was actually a dictionary definition, by the way. Right. Well, well, uh, so, but it's really nice to see sane things printed and not kind of like Mm -hmm. made up, you know, uh, religion or like sort of. And you have a lot of myths, and I so I, right before we, I'd love to talk about. Um, you have a lot, so uh, we'd like to. Yeah, and on. recovery is yeah. one of those myths. Yeah, because I did have a realization at one point, and and forgive me for my bluntness here, but this is the way that I would think about it. It's just the way my head works, which can be a whole other conversation. Yep. But you know, it, it was like I said, it's sort of like twelve step has peed all over that word, <laughs> you know, like my cat would do, right? To claim it. And nobody else can come near it because I've now peed on it, right? And I said, you know what? What is the deal here? Right. <laughs> no, anybody can say they're in recovery. Mm-hmm. Anybody. There's You're no right. recovery right. police, right? right? So, and we use it in medical terms you know, to talk about recovery from cancer or other you know, diseases such as that. So, you know, we use right, it in right. a lot That's of other true. contexts. Right, so right. What, yeah, but what I did was just, start a whole another way of looking at it and yeah. I define recovery as that you know being mindful connected and um having inner growth mm-hmm. and saying mm-hmm. so and I had somebody confront me one time and said so you mean that somebody could still be drinking or using other drugs and they could be in recovery and I said that's right they could mm-hmm. if they're doing all those things sure it That's right. I like to do yes. with drugs. And the oh my god, the part about treating people as if they are what they can be. Yeah, um, so without you know, and you help yep. them to become who yep. they're capable of being without like yep. telling them what to do. This was yep. really powerful part of your book. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I that that was a quote that I found while I was doing my masters. Mm-hmm. And it became my mantra all the way through that school because I was having so many epiphanies mm-hmm. all the way through that. You know, and God love them. They were great with me because I kept saying, but you don't understand. We can't do things that way. You know, and they would just go, it's okay. Just you know, hang in. Keep coming mm-hmm. back. <laughs> and I would mm-hmm. to school, right? And yeah. sure enough, sooner or later, my mind got opened to these uh, – you know, this whole realm of other people and other research and different ways of looking at things. And and I realized that, again, that recovery was supposed to be, this is what I was taught in AA, that recovery was supposed to be about being inclusive, not exclusive. Yeah. You know, and that's when I, when I found myself suffering with a severe mental illness, Mm-hmm. at one point and I started talking about that in a particular meeting in San Francisco and I remember a young lady at God lover she meant well you know uh, this is yeah. about her she came up to me afterwards and I was sobbing and I was near suicide and, and I was just beside myself I didn't know what to do right. and she said you know have you ever thought about writing a gratitude list oh and I remember thinking to myself, thank God I have as much recovery as I do, so I won't hit you. Uh, because, again, you know, it's not about her. It was, right. you know, poor thing. Right. She was still kind of wet behind the ears, literally. And I walked out of that group, which had been a home group of mine for many years, and I never went back and said, that's it. I'm now at the point where the help that I need can't be found here anymore. But that's okay. I got the help I needed. Yeah. 
because the drinking and the drugs aren't the problem anymore. Right. And how, how many years had it been since you, had, since you had a drink or took a drug at that point when you walked out, when you felt like at, that? Uh, 12 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something like that. You know, mm-hmm. I felt like I had a good solid 10, 12 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I didn't walk away from my sponsors. I didn't walk away from my support systems, uh, you know, none of that. I just left the meeting. And I don't think I went to, if I did go, I went to, you know, sporadic kind of handful of meetings. And then finally just stopped and said, this is ridiculous. Why am I, because I would kind of get upset and uncomfortable before I went, mm-hmm. which I'd never really experienced before. Yeah, yeah, and, I understand you know, that, yeah. Yeah, and said, this is crazy. This isn't what it's about. No. Right. Yeah. You're supposed to go when you want to go. Right. <laughs> not when you don't want to go, and not in that way. You know, I wasn't drinking. I had no thoughts of drinking. Hadn't had. Like I said, that 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 was done, and I'm really appreciative mm-hmm. of all of that. And, and so it was did you go for to... me to move on. Yeah, and at that point, what did you do to, um, you know, heal from the mental illness? Did you go into serious therapy with somebody? I and- did. Mm-hmm. I I struggled trying to find a psychiatrist because I don't like them very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had very bad experiences with them as a, a a very young person, and so I struggled. But I found good ones. Thank God I work in the field, and so I have access to some terrific people or people who know other terrific people and i found a psychiatrist who was just amazing to me who would say things like you know i'm going to let's try this medication but i'm going to need you to tell me if it works because what do i know i don't take this stuff (laughs) right right. i love him and you know and he did he said i really need you to partner with me in this this is Mm -hmm. your illness and i'm going to do my best but i need you to help me and you know that was the start and since then, it's been, you know, sort of a back and forth until finally I think we figured out what was going on. And and he was rather embarrassed that he had never seen it. And it turns out I had bipolar disorder, uh, not just uh, major depression. Wow. And I remember looking at him and saying, but why would you know that? Why would I come in when I was feeling good? Yeah, <laughs> and he went, right. Oh, yeah, that's right, a really right. good point. And I said, yeah, so you never saw the mania. All you ever saw was the depression. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I'm pleased to say that I do obviously talk about that publicly now and, you know, feel pretty stable with that. But I think that's another thing that people in the field in particular, those of us who work there, need to talk a bit about and say, you know, it's okay. Yeah, you know, I just, uh, I spoke to somebody today um, Uh and I have two very close family members that need to take um, antidepressants. One who's taking Mm -hmm. it very successfully, who takes a very small amount, and it's really helped him. And then someone mm-hmm. else has sort of been struggling, find, trying to find the right combination. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that um, people need to talk freely, and it doesn't happen in AA. There's still a lot of judgment. And, right. uh, you know, I think that there should be a disclaimer. I think it's going to be eventually be a legal liability for them that needs to be said you cannot, you know, you can't talk whether someone should take an aspirin or a pain medication or a psych med. Right. Like, period. You can't give medical advice. You can't advice. give medical advice. <laughs> At all. Like, I mean, I'm really mad about this because I have a brother-in-law committed suicide a couple months ago. So I really feel like it needs to be up there with the safety statement. But I love, thank you so much it's for sharing and being honest safety. about this. Yeah. Because there's people that are, I have a lot of people in the chat room. You know, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people out here, mm-hmm. you know, in the chat room. And I know that, I don't even know if she, is, if she is listening tonight, but there was one person who, you know, is trying to find that right medication so mm-hmm. um, would you share it's a struggle. With, yep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, can you? did you find the right thing right away? No. Oh, God, no. It took mm-hmm. years. Wow. It really did. I mean, okay. some would work for a while. You know, I would get two or three years, and then it would bottom out and stop mm-hmm. working. And But now remember, we were also not treating the mania. So this is part of it. We were only treating the depression at that point. Right. So, you know, it became very complicated. And then, of course, not too long after that, I developed fibromyalgia. Oh, wow. You know, so that's a whole nother piece. So now I had to, and I said to me, that was the saddest part. And I remember talking to, I had a a roommate at the time um, who's still a good friend of mine, and I still 
talk to her about these kinds of things. Her husband is someone who has struggled with some addictions as well. Mm-hmm. And I said the one place that I felt the closest, you know, the safest to go and talk about things was AA, and I can't go there to talk about this. Mm-hmm. I can't go there to talk about my mental health. I can't. Yeah. I sure can't go there to talk about my use of pain medications for a, a disorder. Right. Uh, and that's really I know a shame. Who's had fiber, yeah, it's supposed to be really painful. Uh huh. Well, it is. I mean, I've I've probably had it my entire life and got diagnosed about 12 years ago with it. Mm-hmm. And it's been a real learning curve, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. In a lot of ways, it was just like treating my addiction. Mm-hmm. And I was one of those that in order to, I want to know everything I can about something. Right, uh, and then I burn out, and then I got to take a breath and <laughs> waver for a while, and then I go back and go, okay, I think I'm ready to go read about this shit again, you know, and go back. Oh in God, I relate more. to you, you know. It was Penn and Teller uh, was so good. I mean, your presence <laughs> was, you know, so amazing on that. I don't want to, you oh, know, thanks. I want you to finish what you're saying, but I'd love to talk about that episode <laughs> as well. Okay, so- you know, you kind of go in and you go out and you go in and you go out because you can only take so much of this stuff. It's heavy. Right, right. It's serious. I mean, yeah. we're talking, you know, big stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I was with the addiction. And the problem, in some ways, I went off and went to school to be an addictions counselor. Yeah. And I took my classes up here, and I remember them talking about, like harm reduction, for instance, and pretty much all they said was, don't do it. (laughs) It it includes methadone, which is terrible, and otherwise it's it's like um, managing your drinking and nobody can do that, and that's it. Oh, wow, how stupid. What year was that, that they were so stupid? (laughs) I know, that was the early 90s. Oh God! I'm th- I'm I mean, glad it wasn't that long ago, and it was. Can, can, you, can you get Excuse on like Bill Maher or something and talk about this? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. that's a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's it's just really interesting when you look at that and think, why is it that we are so invested with being the expert all the time and thinking that we know everything? of how everyone should run their life and what they should and shouldn't do and what's best for them, and I barely know their name. <laughs> I know. Like, I loved how you compared, like, you know, how AA, I guess, looked at one time and then how it looks now. It's like, even me, for mm-hmm. someone who came in the 70s, like, yeah. I actually contacted, like, a lawyer recently, and, and the person said, oh, well, that, that could never happen because a sponsor gets assigned to newcomers. And I said, you got to be kidding me. If she said that to you, that means that she's a member of the Pacific Group. That is not Alcoholics Anonymous does not assign. There even is not right. a sponsor word in the big book. You do not right. assign. These are, you know, what are you, like a child? Like you treat me like a five-year-old? Well, that's about right. Yep. That's why Either a lot that of men you are really... military. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and that's okay. If you join the military, that's fine. You can expect that in boot camp. But that's kind of what treatment became, was boot camp. Mm-hmm. And, and you only work in treatment you a short time, I see in your book. You said you, like, you didn't really like treatment. Sorry? But, um, but I think in your book you said you didn't work in treatment itself a long time. You didn't really like it? No, I did. I worked in it, well, I still work in it, in a private practice setting. Oh, oh right, but I meant like in, you know, sort of as a counselor in a treatment center. That no, was I did not that for a long time. Thing. Yeah, I did that for about 15 years. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Now, I I liked some aspects of it. Uh, And I still think that treatment has a place, just perhaps not as big of a place. And I I was interviewed on the radio, I don't know, a year or two ago, talking about treatment. And the interviewer said, so, you know, what would you do? What do you think would be the best thing to do with treatment? And sometimes, and I just blame it on the bipolarness, you know, I will mm-hmm. blurt something out before I really think about what I said. And right. and I said, oh, just blow it to smithereens and start over again or something like that. <laughs> and she cracked up, you know. And I said, well, I don't know what else to say at this point because we keep trying to patch this thing up, and it doesn't seem to work. 
you know, we get people more education. We try to increase the amount of education that workers should have if they're going to be working in treatment. We, you know, do all these sorts of, of safety things, you know, for consumer right. safety and consumer mm-hmm. protection, mm-hmm. Um, which is really important because there is none to, when you think right. about it, and that's mostly because people don't think they have the right to it mm-hmm. when they come into treatment. They're so yeah. beaten up. Um, so very few people ever complain. And that's the other thing. I think unless we kind of stand up and take a note from other people who have stood up and said, we're not going to take this crap anymore, um, I don't think it really will change. It's a billion-dollar industry. Uh, Why would it change? Uh, well, yeah, it's a good – I have a, a, a blogger asking me a question to ask you. Um uh-huh. Alcoholism isn't what it used to be, study from APA and IAAA. Most people, 75%, quit without treatment. Let's see. So let's see. The national, I'm not understanding the question, National Epidemic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions. Okay. Uh, I'm not understanding the question, Johnny, if you want to just pose it to me again. Yes, it's become, I'm really concerned about that in young people, maybe, um, yeah. Have you done a book tour, like a radio tour, when the book was first came out? No, I did a little bit of a tour. Unfortunately, it was at a point in my life where I couldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, I just had an awful lot of commitments, and I was teaching school you know, at mm-hmm. the same time. I did do a couple of conferences. I did several book signings, but um, no tour, no. Mm, I would have liked, I, you know, I'm friends yeah. with Amy Lee Coyne now, who wrote from Death to I Part, and you know, uh-huh. I was like, Amy, you got to do a book tour, and I'm like, I think the, <laughs> one of the things that's really, uh, I have two children, I have a 21 year old and a 16 and a half year old, uh-huh. and I think it's so important that um, I'm learning about uh, harm reduction and moderation and how yes. destructive it is to say to my young guys about abstinence and how ridiculous it is. And um, how important to reach, uh, you know, college-age kids and even high school kids to talk about uh, a different way of looking at it, you know? That's right. Well, and how we can reach the young people and educate them. You know, I think we do that by telling the truth. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest thing. You know, when I was young, it was there was a lot of lies, and we still put out way too many lies. And sometimes it's parents feeling. And I am a parent. I have a 32-year-old. You know, I well understand what. And I remember when he started using a little bit of drugs, including alcohol, in his later high school years. You know, like, like most kids do. And I remember my heart fluttering and thinking, "Oh my God, you know, is, right. is he going to develop what I did?" You know? Right. And we had long conversations. There's not anything about my past that my son doesn't know or that mm-hmm. he can't ask me. I was a single mom. I don't know who his father is, so, you know, mm-hmm. there was no asking dad or, you know, biological father even who who it was or what he had, you know, for any medical conditions, let alone something like um, uh, alcohol dependence or other drug dependence. But it was a pretty you know, safe bet that I wasn't hanging around with men who didn't have some trouble with drugs mm-hmm. you know, at that point. So... I look at that and I look at why and even say, why did he not ever develop a problem? And yeah. he didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just finished his master's and is working in the entertainment industry down there by you. And what does he, he do? Yeah, he's a graphic designer. He works for the stars like Rihanna and um, he just worked with Stevie Wonder. And Really? He does some, yeah, he does video and graphic design and he's an art director is what he is. Oh wow! I, and, need to get, I need to get in touch with him. <laughs> oh, he—he's fabulous. You know, obviously, it's uh, not just mom saying it. And yeah. and I look at that, and he and I have had those conversations when I'll say, "Well, how come you didn't?" You know, and he was from a single family, and we were poor. I mean, you know, all the the you know, the the bad statistics, right? <laughs> mean mm-hmm. he's going to grow up and have all these problems. And I remember he looked at me and he said, "Mom, I always knew I was loved." Yeah. And no matter what happened, I knew you loved me. I knew it was going to be okay. Wow, that's and really I thought, oh, my God. And that's Stanton Peel and I have had these conversations about mm-hmm. the importance of love. You cannot love your child too much. 
That's so true. If you give them too many things, sure, that yeah. is spoiling, right? But you right. can't spoil them with love. Absolutely not. And that doesn't mean you tell them how wonderful they are and they're the best in everything, because that's not true either. You mm-hmm. tell them the truth. Yeah, and I think that that's what Jesse learned from me, my son, and what I've learned a little bit, because that's my only experience uh, that I've learned, is that it's really important to tell the truth. And when I didn't know something, to say, you know what, I don't know. Let's go find out that answer. Right, Let's right. go look it up. You know, or ask them, what do you know about it? Because kids always know more than we do about those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what have you heard? What do you know? Yeah, Um, and not having, watching our, I guess, being careful of what our reaction is. Mm -hmm. You know, there were a lot of conversations that he and I would have, and I'd have to leave the room after we were done and go back in the bedroom and sit and cry or shake or something or have a cigarette in those days, you know, because it scared me half to death. But that was my reaction because of where my life went. Right. His life was completely different than mine. And that was another thing. You know, our kids are not us. Yeah. They are I think themselves. that's important as as I could see when I before I was sort of seeing the truth about AA when my son, you know, my eldest was drinking uh-huh. all too much that um I was still sort of, you know, really drinking the Kool-Aid and believed all this, you know, really crazy mm-hmm. stuff. Said mm-hmm. things to him like, you know, you have fifty percent chance, you know, you're gonna be like me, you know, and I was so embarrassed, but thank God it was him who kind of helped me uh, see the pull the mm-hmm. you know, the rose colored glasses off my eyes to see AA and the meetings as they are now and mm-hmm. really started to, you know, read every book from Stanton Peel to um what was smart recovery. I mean I unlike you though, I mean I had so many books, I was reading like five books at a time. I know. And changing how I talked to my sons about even his problem, and I used a smart yeah. skill and just said, "Okay, let's focus on the positive and this." But you know what? We have a caller in the um, in the uh, in the. Uh, oh, they just went away. Oops! You want to call back? I'm sorry that I. Um, if you want to call back, caller, uh, let's let's take a call. It's eight one eight yeah four seven five ninety two eleven. I'm sorry that I. Uh, uh, 818-475-9211 if you have a question. Um, here's, a, I just was reading a part of your book. Um, mm-hmm. see if, oh no, this was something else. So what what is a myth, one of the myths that you would like to sort of, um, that, that really you debunked that you have here? Um, well, I think that the, you know, what I tried to do is sort of on both sides and I, I think I could have just spent a whole lot of time in that area, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of them, um, I hope this is one from the book, uh, is talking about harm reduction and what it is and what it isn't. Yeah. You know, that's really important because if we look at other parts of harm reduction, I used to teach a class in harm reduction here in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I would come in, and the first thing that we would do in the class was to start talking about what we thought harm reduction was, to kind of define it, right? And so I would start by saying, um, I'm going to write up on the board what I think harm reduction is. And I would write Diet Coke and pizza. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of the class would go, what are you talking about? (laughs) What do you mean Diet Coke and pizza? And I'd say, well, let's get to the rest of it, and then we'll come back to it. But in this case, I will get to the punchline immediately and say, so I, you only have so many calories right, that you can have. And I like pizza. Mm -hmm. There's only certain kinds I can even eat anymore, but, you know, I really enjoy it. So I would rather have the calories from the pizza and not from Coke or some other beverage. And so I have Diet Coke that has no calories at all along with my pizza. So that's my harm reduction. So instead of not eating pizza at all, I have it, but I pair it with something that kind of balances that. Right. The caller called back. So let's okay. Let's take and see. Hi, hi, caller. You are live. Hello. Hi, Monica. Yes. Hi, it's Watching Straight Inc. Hi. Hello? How you doing? Yeah, great. Um, I can't listen to your radio show, so I'm just ringing in from England. Oh, I see. So, are you able to hear it even on your phone or no? No, I just listen to it on the phone. 
Oh, okay. Do you want me to? Do you want to? You have a question, or uh, you want to say something? Well, to I have or my... a question. I've got a question because um, when I was involved in AA, I was offered um, money to have sex with somebody, and I just want to know how common that is. Hmm. Um. Well, uh, I, I think in Los Angeles. That you know, I don't know. I heard that you know the certain types of meetings where there were women who were new, um, very new, who had really low self-esteem, were you know or giving very, very low, very low funds, maybe. Yeah, yeah. That they were doing it for very little money, like in the that. Yes, that's what I heard from four one four Lincoln on, in Venice, in Kellogg, West LA. That that's that went on there from the men. Didi, you want to so address the question? I, my understanding of my understanding of thirteenth stepping is it's people who just get involved with someone for a relationship, but not for money. Right. Well, well, it, it's any kind of relationship, so that could include having sex for money. It doesn't not include it. Right. In fact, it's sort of a logical expansion of thirteenth stepping. It, it, it is a logical expansion. You know, I told you that I went to my doctor and I had a big big appointment with my doctor for about 40 minutes. Right. And I said, well, basically, if I was a sexual predator, I would be going to AA. That's the only place left to go. Hmm. Yeah, well, I can certainly see it happening. Yeah. It's pretty bad. It's nice to hear your voice. We've been blogging for... I know, it's lovely to hear you. Yeah, thank you for all your work you're doing, your activism work there. And you're in the UK, right? I mean, England, yeah. In England, if I ever, I hope to get there for part of my documentary. If I do, I'm going to get to meet you, right? Oh, I really want to see you with your ninjas. I thought that was a joke. <laughs> you really have your ninjas. I mean, I don't want to see your film. I want to see a film of you. Oh, no, I want the ninjas with me, though, to protect That's me. That's the film. <laughs> you want me to put you back on hold? Do you want to say anything to Dee Dee or ask her anything else? Well, no, because I haven't listened to the radio show. But oh, okay, just, sweetie. Just, just saying hi and love oh, I'm so glad voice. you called in. What time of the day is it over there? Um, it's half past two in the morning. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. All right, sweetie. <laughs> well, are you pickle jerking in the chat room? Yeah. Yes, Did yes, you? yes. All okay. right, sweetie. I'm Thank so glad you. I got to hear your voice, and uh, and I'll put you back on hold, Okay. <laughs> Thanks for calling. I think she okay. went, yeah. Um, wow, <laughs> yeah, great. you know, boy, the stuff that uh, w- was going on. So um, treat people as if they, uh, you know, what, how they, treat them as if they would like to be treated. I'm not saying that right. My mouth is the, not oh, working. Oh, I can so. say it. I've been saying it for years. So it's it. treat people as if they are who they can be, and you help them to become who they're capable of being. Yeah, and that was Johann von Goethe, for anyone who's interested in looking up that quote. And Goethe looks like Goethe, G-O-E-T-H-E, German philosopher. Just now, the other thing that, you, are, that you have experience with um, is motivational interviewing. Yes, right? I've been very oh, fortunate. Okay, so I don't know anything about that because I, you know, so there's people on the blogs who've left a long time ago AA who need uh-huh. other help. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Thanks for asking. That's one of my favorite subjects and something I do a ton of training on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I'm I'm taking that little Goethe saying and hoping to translate that right. into training people to treat people better. You know, if and I, I you know, I'm not going to get into whether this is a disease or not. It doesn't make any difference as far as I'm concerned. But it's it's something, right? You know, there's right. something going on. And we can just say that when people have a condition like this, like alcohol or drug, some kind of drug dependence or gambling problems or whatever it is, you know, there's, they should be treated with respect like anyone else. When I go in to my doctor about my fibromyalgia, I want her to treat me with respect. And not only do I want it, but I expect it and I demand it because I think that mm-hmm. highly of myself now right. that I know I deserve it. You know? It doesn't mean I get arrogant. It doesn't mean I'm rude. It just means that I know how to ask good questions, that I know how to assert myself in a in a respectful way, and that I don't necessarily always I – mean, that this works as a partnership. It's not about her 
taking charge of my life is my life, and she's great about that. You know, I found someone to work with. So that's sort of one of the things that I encourage people to do. Whether it's a doctor you're looking at or a psychologist or a counselor or I do a lot of change coaching as well, you know, whatever the, the job description is, to make sure that it's someone who treats you with respect. One of the ways that you can be fairly certain, not always, right, but fairly right. certain, is to ask that person, do you have any training in motivational interviewing? Uh-huh. And if they say, what the heck is that? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. I'm not saying run, but I'm saying you might want to consider not working with that person. Now, if it still feels good in your gut that this person is treating you well, is listening to things that you say, treating you with respect, then maybe that will be a good fit because that's right. really what's important. But MI is a skill set that can help that counselor or that I've had ministers in my trainings, I've had coaches, I've had doctors, I've had psychiatrists and psychologists and you know any person you can think of in the helping professions, even criminal justice, um, probation mm-hmm. officers and the, the like. When you find someone and, and they say that I've been trained in MI and I really believe in motivational interviewing, then you can be pretty sure that this is a person who's going to treat you like an equal partner in this relationship. Right. Now, the bad news about that is it means who's going to do the work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I am, right? Meaning right. the person, <laughs> the right. client. Right. <laughs> and that's the way it should be because it's my life. So mm-hmm. my doctor isn't particularly good about finding out all the latest info on fibromyalgia. Frankly, some days I wish she would, but that's just because I get tired of reading it all. But that's my job. That's my condition. I need to go do some reading about it, and I need to talk to other people with it, and I need to sit and think, how how does that fit in how I see my life and I see how I want my life? whether I use medications or not, whether I exercise and what kind of exercise I do or not, whether I use nutrition or not, you know, any of those questions are all things that can fit into this conversation too. And it's all part of that change process. And motivational interviewing is an important part of setting the stage. It also is a way for me as a clinician to help motivate you. And I always tell the folks I work with, that you know, that my job is really to keep you motivated and to get you you know, in the direction of the goal that you say you want, not in some predetermined goal that I think you should right. have, like abstinence, for instance. Not my right. job. Now, if, if somebody's asking a question for you, um, if mm-hmm. somebody, so could you give us an example? Somebody comes in and they say they're really unmotivated and depressed. Mm-hmm. Um, could you give us an example of how the conversation might go? Or, or, you know, should we ask somebody to call in, or can you just give me an example? from? Sure. I mean, I can give you some examples. One of the okay. things that we want to do in motivational interviewing, we like to talk more about the strengths of the person. You know, we obviously know you have problems because you're in the office. Something's right. not going the way that you'd like to. Okay, that's a given, right? Right. And, I want to know what's going on, absolutely. But I don't know that I need to know that first. I might first mm-hmm. be more interested in having you tell me a little bit about what's going right in your life. Yeah. Just talking about what things are going well in your life can actually make you feel better. Yeah. That's research-based. And it makes common sense, right? So if I'm talking about things that make me feel better, it doesn't mean I'm going to ignore the other part. But then I may want to ask questions about um, what have you noticed about your depression? When are you more depressed than other times? Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things. Because as Scott Miller likes to say, who's a colleague of mine, a very prolific author, I'll plug one of his best books. is called The Heart and Soul of Change, and it has a second edition now. And he likes to say that, you know, it's if something is working, first of all, keep doing it, right? Right. And the second little mantra is nobody can have their problem all the time. Mm-hmm. There have to be exceptions. And so part of my work is to help you to see when those exceptions are. And there's a reason for that. 
Because if you discover, for instance, that you're more depressed when you're home alone watching um, oh comedies, like the, the romantic comedies um, right. on TV, and that really gets you depressed, and that's when you really start hitting bottom. Great. Now we know one thing to avoid, right? We can yeah. say, how about avoiding that? You know, what might be getting in your way of watching some other kind of show or is there another way perhaps of not being alone during that time when you feel that serious depression coming on, which often people, I know I can, I can feel it when I'm certain to bottom. Mm. Um, I've talked to other friends with yeah. even a, a simple depression, a major depressive episode, you know, dysthymia, which is the long-acting, goes-on-forever kind of depression, any of them, they can feel when they're slipping into that dark hole. And mm-hmm. We know. So that's important information. And then I need to know, when do I feel better? So one of the times that I feel better is when I go for a walk and have a swim with a friend of mine, a former neighbor of mine, right? In fact, she and I did that today. Right. And I'm hurting like a son of a gun, my shoulder I'm having trouble with, but I did (laughs) it anyway because I know that I'm going to feel better if I do that and if I just come home and even if I'm taking care of my shoulder, it's in enough pain, I'm going to get depressed, I'm not going to want to do anything then. Mm. So I don't want to fall into that if I can help it. Um, and right now I'm thinking about this so I can help that. So those are the kinds of ways that we might want to work with someone. We also want to work with their ambivalence. And ambivalence mm-hmm. is just a nice fancy word right? that says I feel two ways about something. Part of me wants to change, part of me doesn't. And seeing that is normal. That's the first part. You're not in denial. Right. (laughs) Right. That's ridiculous. No. Right. Somebody's asking you to think about making a big change in your life, perhaps taking away the only coping mechanism you have, like alcohol or another drug, Right. and you don't have anything else to put in place yet. Mm -hmm. This is where harm reduction can come into play. Right. Uh, and you can baby step your way to abstinence if that's where you want to wind up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that can be another piece of that motivation. So we're always looking at what the motivation is, how to improve people's motivation, how to get them talking about change, the positive sides of change, because we have research that shows that's what helps. Did that help? That was kind of you a know, it really did. I have people in, in the blog um, that are really happy, some people who are suffering from depression, who have long left uh-huh. AA. Actually, some of them have gotten, you know, clean and sober when they left AA after years uh-huh. in and out. Um, it, Amy's asking here, Amy Lee Kauai, how does that deal with dissolving the fear? Um, I think you need to walk through emotional fear to lessen its power. I'm not sure if she's actually talking amongst them. I have kind of a... A serious situation that somebody actually I've gotten many phone calls from people who've been raped um, uh-huh. by members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, not one, like more than I'd like to tell you. Okay, so yeah. um, mm. if somebody comes into your office and they were raped by a member, didn't go to the police, um, months have passed, and yeah. they are traumatized. Right. Um, I know that maybe, you know, you can't, there's no generalizing here. I, this, what I loved about your book is that you said everybody should have individualized treatment. There is no right. one-size-fits-all, which anybody out there, you know, coming to Harm Reduction, Kicking and Screaming by Dee Dee Stout, uh, who I have with me on tonight, is such a fresh approach about treating people with human dignity and respect um, but could you, I mean, we have like six minutes left. Mm-hmm. Just uh, When someone comes in with serious trauma for the first time, mm-hmm. what words of wisdom? You have a lot of recovery. You have a mm-hmm. lot of really loving, um, empowering kind of, uh, you know, stuff here with you. What would you say to somebody? Great question. And I do work with, uh, folks with a, a lot of folks with trauma. That's one of my areas mm-hmm. uh, because of my own history in part, mm-hmm. but that's not something that I share with the clients I work with. That would not be appropriate. This is mm-hmm. their ter- time, not mine. Right. Right. But um, that being said, if the first thing I want to know is really how they see it. Mm-hmm. Do they see it as trauma? 
Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes things will happen to people um, like a rape, you know, something that serious that most of us would probably say, well, of course that would be traumatic. But it isn't always to the person. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. You know, yeah, that's the other thing. People get to have their experience the way they have it, right? So right. I can say that's perfectly fine. I might want to just ask a general question about how do you see that that incident may have or may not have affected your drinking, your using, your recovery, you know, whatever it is, right? mm-hmm. and see if there's any connection. Did that person wind up using more? Because that's gen- generally what happens. Right, right. Uh, and that's the tricky part, right? So now if if what we know in research, here's a statistic for you, 55 to 99% of the women that show up for treatment for drug and alcohol, what we call SUDS, substance use disorders, right. have a history of trauma, 55 mm-hmm. to 99%. Wow. Okay? Now, when you yeah. take away the drug including alcohol, anything Mm -hmm. that they're using, the moment they hit the door, right, because you're an abstinence-only model, what are you going to give her that's going to help her with all the symptoms, including probably um, acting out in anger, perhaps on herself, cutting Mm -hmm. behavior, other sexually acting out, it could be um, you know, not being able to sit in the group. It might be you know, any number of things, leaving treatment, <laughs> you know, yeah. all of those things. Mm-hmm. Right? Because the experience of treatment is going to be too re-traumatizing without the help of something. So one of the things that one of my mentors, Alan Marlatt, who died recently, who's a professor of psychology and the world's leading expert in both harm reduction and relapse prevention, And he would say you can't expect people to stop a coping mechanism without before they have something else in place. That's just insane. Mm -hmm. So either we have to give them something, you know, medicine-wise, in in small doses with a a medical personnel, you know, they're making sure that this is safe, or um, we need to let them continue to use to some degree, maybe it's an outpatient program, Right. Where, you know, they're monitored to see are they cutting back or even if they increased, well, what happened? Instead of being judgmental about it, just ask how come? Yeah. What happened? You know, I just interviewed Tom Horvath down in San Diego for yeah. my entry. My and buddy. Boy, yeah. Oh, my God. I was so. Have you been down there to see his? I haven't been able to. No, I know. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was so refreshing. And I have to say that when I asked him a question and he actually said that when people come, you know, to the recovery home, that mm-hmm. it isn't just absence right away. Like if somebody wants to reduce, you know, right. the you know their use instead of like that everybody has to go for you know absence right away. And I I can really see that with young people. That's a little ridiculous, you know. And um, right. I felt like my brain was just feeling so sane, Dee Dee. Just like oh, I, I know, I know. No, I mean, it it's was so really. Great. We got to promote. All of you and the, these books and these uh, and and Tom's place and because there's so many people you know what about you know uh, Amy Winehouse and you know including Charlie Sheen right. where and now his father oh yeah don't get me started where Martin Sheen has been in Washington you know I in know. front of the Senate committee telling them oh we need more money for rehab and I'm like no you don't like you don't have, the guys don't have enough money you know uh, oh boy I'll get on my soapbox here now quickly but yeah, <laughs> I, want to I know. <laughs> I, you know, I understand, believe me. Well, the good news is that on Friday I am going to be filmed for a new documentary on treatment. Oh, really? Um, yes, and I'm really excited. Tom, I know, was interviewed and taped and filmed. I'm sorry, not taped, filmed. Yeah. And I fly down on a Friday. So, and this is a guy who wants to pull back some of the curtain on treatment. Oh, no, good. So Someone I'm else really, doing another yeah. project. Mine, oh, exactly. this is good. So oh. I will let you know. I don't know the working title of the film yet. So one thing I forgot to ask him in the conversations we've had, but he sounds like a terrific young man. So uh, I'm very interested I, I want to wrap it up. We have 60 seconds. I, I want to thank Great. you so much, everybody. I want to thank uh, Dee Dee Stout for being on my show. I'll have you on again. So coming to Harm Reduction, Kicking and Screaming. And your website Great. is what? What's your website? 
Well, mine is responsiblerecovery.org, and then the new one is aa2.org, and that is going to be self-help at your own pace without abstinence unless you want it. Oh, that's so awesome. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everybody, for chiming in and Thanks, uh, listening in. Remember, empowerment, not powerless, is our slogan. And I love you guys. I love doing this radio show. Thanks so much, Didi, and um, we'll see you next week. Great. Thank you so much. Good night. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye. All right, everybody. Good night. It was really, really, thank you so much. Thank you for calling in all the way from uh, from the U.K., Pickle Jerkin. Uh, I appreciate you calling in, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.